Palm Sunday. Uh, Palm Sunday is one of those things that, you know, the longer I'm here, it gets a little tougher. So I've been here 26 years. This is 26 Palm Sundays. And you begin to ask yourself, how many sermons are there really in the Bible about Palm Sunday, right? And so that's kind of how my week started. I thought, Lord, I want to have something fresh. I want to have something neat. And what a, what a cool idea he gave me. And I want to share it with you today, this idea that Palm Sunday is this great reminder that our God is a God of second chances. So if you got your Bibles, I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 21. Uh, obviously, the triumphal entry is in each of the Gospels, but this is the one I want to tie into today. Matthew 21, starting with verse 1, we'll read the 11 verses together. It says, so when they had approached Jerusalem and had come to Bethpage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go into the village opposite you. And immediately you will find a donkey tied there and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you will say, the Lord has need of them. And immediately he will send them. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you. Gentle, mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did just as Jesus had instructed them and brought, their don- brought the donkey and the colt and laid their coats on them and he sat on the coats. Most of the crowd spread their coats in the road and others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them in the road. The crowds going ahead of him and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he had entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred, saying, Who is this? And the crowds were saying, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. Now let me ask you a question this morning. Have you ever needed a second chance? Maybe you were in school, took a test, needed a second chance, huh? Or if you ever need a second chance at a job, I was thinking that kind of my first big responsibility whenever I got my first job. So I was, uh, I was a junior high student. I think I was 13 years old. I was, uh, had been serving as kind of the part-time janitor at the church. And yes, believe it or not, I can swing a crazy mop, man. I am really good at floors. That's what I do. And uh, and in the summer, when I, was, uh, when I was 13, the head janitor decided he was ready to retire and quit just like all of a sudden, and he was gone. And there for a couple weeks, I was the head janitor of the church. Now, I want you to know, that first Sunday came with a lot of excitement. We had spit shine that place. That, I mean, every floor was immaculate, buffed just into that perfect sheen. The chairs were all set up perfectly. I thought this was going to be a huge win. Till about midway through the first service that day, another staff member came up to me and said, Steve, did you do the bathrooms? I mean, bathrooms, I'm a floor guy, right? That's, I do floors, I do setup. I never thought about the bathrooms. I needed a second chance. 
uh, which, uh, which I got, fortunately. Uh, or, or maybe a second chance in a relationship. You ever mess one up? Stepped in? I mean, part of uh, Tammy and I's story, I don't tell this one very often, but uh, we were starting to date about a year after I had uh, lost my wife. And, and in fact, I even went back to Ohio uh, to kind of close some doors emotionally. And, you know, so my, you know, man, my emotions were kind of all over the place. And, and, and obviously I cared for Tammy and I didn't want to hurt her. And, and so I, I, one day I, I asked her to come into my office and I just wanted to share. In fact, the funny thing is I don't remember much of what I said and yet, 33 years later, she remembers every word of it. Um, but it was something to the effect that, you know, I, I wasn't sure I was ever going to remarry. And if she was waiting for that, she might be waiting. Let's put it this way. I stepped in it pretty deep, okay? And, uh, and I found that out about a week later, 10 days later, because I haven't heard from her. And I'm kind of getting lonely. And I had some friends coming in. Uh, from town, and we were going to go up to Sedona, and I really didn't want to go alone, and I needed a second chance. And uh, I, I negotiated for that, and actually it was that trip to Sedona that was kind of the moment, and, uh, but, and, but second chance. And what's interesting, when you think about the triumphal entry, what you really, I think, see is not even a second chance or a third chance, but a fourth, fifth, sixth chance that Jesus is giving the Jewish leaders to understand, to respond to who he was. Because from the very moment Jesus came, Jesus came to present himself as the Messiah, as the promised one, as the one that God was going to send to this world. And you now start looking back through his life and think about how many times this got proclaimed, how many times this got put out that they should have responded, that they should have known, that they should have believed. I mean, it started some 33 years earlier with his birth, right? That was the first time it was proclaimed. It was proclaimed to the shepherds. They're out sitting there in the middle of the night. Angels show up in the sky and the angels say, hey, today in the city of David, a baby has been born who's the Savior, who is Christ. You know what Christ means? Messiah. You don't think that news didn't get around? It did. Not only that, a couple months later, these magi, these wise men from the east show up in Jerusalem and say, hey, where is he who's born king of the Jews? Right? We've seen his star in the east. We've come to worship him. And Herod's all bothered by this because he was the king. He didn't want another king. So he goes to the Jewish leaders and says, where's the Messiah going to be born? Because these guys show up and said he has been born. And they said Bethlehem. That they quote from Micah chapter 5 verse 2. But it's for you Bethlehem, too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you one will go forth from me to be ruler over Israel. By the way, whose goings forth are from long ago and from days of eternity. There's something special about this. If you ever go to Israel, Bethlehem's not that far away. Five, six miles. They wouldn't even take the time to go and to travel over. They should have known. Was another opportunity missed. Then a guy, 
what, 25, 26 years later shows up on the scene by the name of John the Baptist. And John the Baptist proclaims that the Messiah is going to come. And that Jesus is the Messiah. So remember, John's out there preaching. And God's hand is upon him. So that all of, all of Israel is being moved. And so, the, again, the religious leaders go, man, we got to figure this out. So they send people to John and say, tell us, are you the Messiah? And John says, no. Or are you Elijah? And he says, no. Well, who are you? Well, what John says in John 1 is, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. It's Isaiah. The prophet has said. So Isaiah has said this, but also Malachi, which they would have known. I mean, Malachi was the last book written before the 400 years of silence, before John the Baptist comes, in Malachi 3.1, it says, I'm going to send my messenger. I'm the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the paths of the Lord, right? Notice, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. They should have known. They should have understood. that God had already given them opportunity to believe. In fact, the very next day, while those people from the, the, the rulers of Israel are there, John the Baptist looks at Jesus as he comes walking up to be baptized and says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is another opportunity. But they refuse to believe. So then Jesus sets about three years, because remember, it starts with his baptism. Then he goes to the wilderness to be tempted for 40 days. And when he comes back from that, now he starts doing his ministry. And he starts doing his miracles. And what's interesting is that there comes a time when John the Baptist himself is having some questions. You go, why did John the Baptist now have questions? Well, John ended up in prison. I don't think that's what he was expecting. I think he was also expecting, like many of them, a Messiah that was going to raise this great political revolution. Jesus wasn't doing that. So he sends his followers, a couple of his disciples, to go ask Jesus, Jesus, are you the one or do we look for another? Remember that? What's really interesting, it's, it's recorded in Luke 7, when they get to Jesus, Jesus doesn't answer the question right away. In fact, what it tells us is that he's there, he's healing the multitude. And the miracles that we see Jesus do so much is that he's causing blind eyes to see, deaf ears to hear, lame legs to walk, right? He's raising the dead. So they come from John, they ask Jesus, Jesus kind of almost ignores them keeps doing. He heals all the sick that have come to him. Then he turns to them. And it's just amazing what he does. All he does is point back to Isaiah, Isaiah 35 and Isaiah 61. This is what he says. Go and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor have the gospel preached to him. All he's doing is he's quoting Isaiah. Isaiah told us when the Messiah comes, this is what he's going to do. This is what I'm doing. The leaders of Israel knew that. It was another opportunity. A few months before we get to the triumphal entry, Jesus is, is in Jerusalem. And he tells them very specifically, 
that he's the Messiah. He's the one sent from God. You get it in John chapter 8. He directly claims to be the Messiah. In John 8, 42, he said, listen, if God were your father, you would love me. For I proceed, I come from the Father. I come from God. I'm not even come with my own initiative, but he has sent me. And then they begin to talk about how great their father Abraham was and all this. And a few month, few verses later there in, in John chapter 8, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Right? He takes upon himself the very name of God, I am. They pick up stones to stone them. They knew. You see, they had opportunity after opportunity after opportunity after opportunity. And now with the triumphal entry, God is giving them one more opportunity to believe. And this is so unique. Look at verse 5. Say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, gentle, mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the full of a beast of burden. Folks, can I just remind you? That in, in, in Old Testament biblical times, kings didn't ride donkeys, they rode horses. That was the powerful, swift animal. In fact, can I remind you that when Jesus returns at his second coming, he's not going to be riding a donkey. He's riding a horse, a big old white horse. But Zechariah had said, very specifically, listen... When the Messiah comes, your king is coming. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even a colt. So Jesus now is riding into this very unique prophecy. And in the midst of this, the crowd starts going crazy. And either knowingly or unknowingly, they literally fulfill Psalm 118. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's what they begin to cry out. I mean, God is giving one more opportunity, one more chance for the Jewish leaders, for the Pharisees, for the priests to believe, to understand, to comprehend. He's a God of second chances and third chances and fourth chances. But what you got to understand is that there's consequences to ignoring that. You know, I run into people periodically who have heard the, the truth of salvation, that there's only salvation in Jesus' name, but, you know, they kind of want to live their life. So their sense is, I've still got time, right? i still got time. I'm going to go my way, but then I'm, I'm going to have time. And what they don't understand is that that is a really, really dumb thought process. Because A, number one, God has never obligated himself to give us a second chance. He does. But every time we turn him down, every time we ignore his call, something happens. One of the things that happens is that when you and I put off God's call in our life, it hardens our heart. And this is both for those who maybe you've been coming, maybe you've been watching online, you've been listening and you've been hearing that salvation is in Jesus and in Jesus alone. And you've heard about how he's died for you and paid the penalty for your sin. But you say, hey, not yet, not yet. There's a callousness, there's a hardness that starts going there. It also happens with God's children, people who have accepted him. 
And they're, they're walking in a place of disobedience and the Holy Spirit tugs and the Holy Spirit speaks to his word. And, but no, I want to keep going my own way. There's a hardness that comes on. And with that, a loss of sensitivity to the voice of God. In fact, you're going to see this in the Pharisees who at first were somewhat interested in who Jesus was. And then they have not responded, and they put it off, and now they begin to call him part of, uh, you know, working for Satan. That now even as he's writing into this very specific prophecy, <laughs> their hearts are so hard they're going to cry, he's got to be killed. Pilate, you've got to crucify him. Even when Pilate comes out three times and says, I find no fault with him. You see, there's a hardness, there's a callousness. I... I was thinking, I don't know how many of you played baseball. I, I used to love playing baseball. And uh, as a kid, I remember this, that, you know, uh, <clears throat> of course, fall was football season, and then in the spring you get baseball season. And even though I, you, you play, one of the things you have to understand is that the first couple times you pick up a bat in the spring, uh, and you hit the ball, and you even hit it well, it hurts. It hurts. Because back in the day, we weren't wussies. We didn't wear batting gloves, right? And, and the point is, is that when you start, you don't have any calluses. And it just hurts. But the more you swing the bat, the more you hit the ball, the more it rubs in your hand. You build up calluses. Your, your sensitivity goes away. And by mid-season, man, you're hitting the ball everywhere. In fact, you file tip, you didn't get it right. It doesn't hurt anymore, right? The bees are gone. You, you've calloused your hand. That's what happens in your heart when you don't listen, when you don't follow what God is, is pulling and tugging. And that's what happens. So that when, just like with the Pharisees, so that when he tugs again, you're not as sensitive to it. There's another consequence that happens, and that is this. That even if you have an opportunity later in life to respond to the gospel message, you, you lose all this time. Right? Uh, now, none of us know how we're going to die. But, but maybe you have that opportunity in your dying moment to put your faith and trust in Jesus. Listen, that deathbed salvation is better than no salvation. But think of all the wasted years. I mean, I, I've grown up in, around Christians all my life, and, and I've been to more testimony meetings than I care to remember. But I have yet to hear one of them say, you know, I asked Jesus in my heart, as a, as a young kid, and I was going to follow him, and now I'm old, and that was the worst decision I ever made. I've never heard anybody say that. But I've heard countless people say, you know what? I heard the message of salvation, but I put it off. I thought I wanted to figure it out on my own. I wanted to do it my way. Or I accepted Christ, but, and I knew his call upon my life to walk in obedience, but I wanted to walk my own way. And that was my biggest regret. I wasted all those years because walking with Jesus was the best thing I ever did. There's another consequence and that is that at some point there are no more second chances. Right? I don't think God is obligated to give us a second chance. I think he does because he's a God of grace. I think we typically see that. But we're not always promised it. None of us knows what happens tomorrow. 
Right? I don't know if you saw the news this week of a young man over at GCU. We had watched him as a young freshman come into the basketball team, just paid in NCAA. He's gone in an automobile accident. None of us knows what tomorrow holds. Not a one of us. And there comes a time when there, there are no more opportunities. As the writer of Hebrew puts it, man, it's appointed in a man once to die. And then comes judgment. There are no second chances then. And none of us knows when that moment comes when we've even hardened our hearts so much that we won't be sensitive to the call of God upon our lives. So the reality is, and I think the message that I want to share with you today is just simply this, that today's the day of salvation, right? Today's the day to respond yes to God's tugging at your heart. Today's the moment to, to respond. This, this, is, this is the day. This is the time to say yes. This was the time for, for the Jewish leaders to go, man, this is the Messiah and to get on board. This is your moment. You, you maybe have been coming and you've been listening. You've been hearing the message of salvation that Jesus has died for you. And that all you need to do is put your faith and trust in him. But you've been putting it off. You've been holding back. You say, I am not ready. Man, God has given you a second opportunity today. And there's not one promise to tomorrow. You know, maybe you're, you're here as a believer and you've accepted Jesus, but there's a point of disobedience in your life. And man, the Lord's been tugging on you about it. The Lord's been, you know, you go to your scripture and it seems like every time you come here, it seems like always preaching at you. Because God's trying to get your attention because he loves you. He cares about you. He knows that that point of disobedience is going to cause great harm in your life. Today's the day. You know, we can't go back and fix yesterday. But today's the day we can say yes. Today's the day we can say, Lord, I repent. I agree with you on this. I'm going to turn from that. To know his forgiveness and his cleansing. And quite honestly, that's a, you know, today we're going we're to take communion. And I love communion because it's those moments when we get to reflect what God has done. And to be able to go, okay, how am I doing? Do I know Jesus? Have I come to put my faith in him? And, and then how am I doing? Is there anything between my, my soul and my Savior? Now here's the thing. We're going to take communion. I need you to understand there's nothing about taking communion that brings salvation. You see, it's not a box that you tick. It's not a ritual you run through. Quite honestly, you can grab a handful of these and you could take them home and you could do it every day. If you'd want to eat that wafer every day, we will pray for you also. But it's not changing anything because salvation comes through faith. Jesus died. Jesus paid it all. That's what we're going to sing about. And all I do and all you do is that we put our faith in Jesus. We, as an act of our will, we choose to believe that Jesus came and died for us. Today's the moment of salvation. Mm -hmm.